I invite you to turn your Bibles to Mark 12. Uh, Mark chapter 12 this morning. Uh, we're going to be looking at uh, the end of this chapter. As we come to Mark chapter 12 this morning, uh, we are coming to uh, the final part of a large section. The final part of a large section. It began up in chapter 11. Uh, for those of you who are quick at you know, sword drill uh, and finding the, the chapter in your Bible, if you see Mark 11 there in your text, verse 27, that's when the section started. It says there, and they came again to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, that's Jesus, walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him. So this section, this large section, the second last large section of Mark's gospel starts in 1127 in the temple when three groups of people come to confront Jesus. There's an initial controversy that goes on in chapter 11, after which at the beginning of chapter 12, Jesus gives a parable about wicked tenants. And we found that when we studied that parable about wicked renters, that was actually about the bad leaders of Israel, those same uh, chief priests, elders, and scribes. Well, those groups actually retreat, regroup, and for the rest of chapter 12, they keep sending new waves of people back at Jesus with tricky questions or disputes. So that in chapter 12, verse 13, for instance, they send Pharisees and Herodians to go get him. In 12, 18, Sadducees come asking him questions. And in 12, 28, one legal expert, a scribe, comes and asks him questions. And all of this controversy and all this debate will end decisively today in our sermon in Mark 12, 35 through 44. Jesus will end it very decisively. Now, it's hard to keep in mind because of how long we've taken through, to go through the text and you know, the break with the four weeks around Christmas, is that all of these events are occurring in one day in the temple. One day in the temple. The temple, of course, was a very important building for the religious Jewish people. It's their most prominent religious, it's the center of their religious life. But the temple is also the place where you had the seat, it's the seat of the religious power's authority. The Sanhedrin, the scribes, elders, chief priests, Herodians, and others like them. So from chapter 11, verse 27, through the end of chapter 12, these verses contain the events not only of a large section, but of a long day in the temple with Jesus debating a coalition of religious forces in Jerusalem. And so today we'll see that Jesus ends it in a unique way. He ends it with, by criticizing the scribes, the legal experts. And he, he criticizes particularly two aspects of them in their lives. He criticizes, number one, their theology, and number two, their behavior. And so that's what we're going to look at today. Two-point outline, the scribes' theology, bad theology and bad behavior. Let's look at their theology first, verses 35 through 37. It says, uh, and as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? 
David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord, so how is he his son? And a great throng heard him gladly. Here, Jesus' criticisms of the scribes' theology starts with a question. How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? Okay, well, when we first hear that question, uh, hopefully you, you, you respond a little bit like me. You know, enough of the Bible, you say, well, that seems to be a bit confusing, right? So how can the scribes say that the Messiah, that the Christ would be the son of David? And the reason it's confusing is we might ask, well, what problem could Jesus have with that? I mean, doesn't the Old Testament teach that the Messiah will come from the seed of David? And so this question, I think, uh, although difficult and a little bit obscure, will help us learn a little bit more about the scribes' theology. I like how one old evangelical scholar, his name is Ralph Martin, he's since passed away, gone home to be with the Lord, how he described this question. He said, he said it this way, he said, after a day of questions comes the question of the day. Oftentimes in ministry, Jesus will use questions to kind of provoke or stimulate thought and the response of the crowds, and, and this is a great example of that. What is obscure, it becomes obvious as you study the text. What is obvious is that Jesus now goes on the offensive. Okay? He's been asking, getting all these questions from all these groups. Now it's his turn to ask a question. So I think the, the, the key to understanding this question is to know that as soon as he asks the question, he quotes from an important Old Testament text of Scripture, Psalm 110, which uh, John Fulberg uh, read this morning for us. Psalm 110, verse 1. This is the most quoted verse in the New Testament uh, uh, from the Old Testament Scripture. Now, before the quote, you, you notice how Jesus introduces this quote, or how Mark introduces it for us. Uh, he says uh, two things. He says that David is the author of the psalm. David himself wrote this. But then he says, so too is the Holy Spirit. Okay? David himself, in the Spirit, declared this. Okay, that's the way he introduces a quote. Now, that's important because there are a lot of scholars who say David didn't really write Psalm 110. And I've got a big problem with that. Because Jesus said he did. So that solves it for me. Okay, so let's just push that aside. Jesus says, David himself wrote this in the Holy Spirit. Two authors, David, Holy Spirit. Okay, now here's the quote. The quote is, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. I think that the, 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 the way to understand the quote and what Jesus is doing with it is to just look at the first phrase. The Lord said to my Lord. In, in this phrase, in its original setting, Psalm 110, the psalmist identifies three people. Three people. You get this, you understand Psalm 110. The three people are identified in that, in that phrase. First, it says, the Lord. Okay, and if you notice the way Lord is spelled in many of your English Bibles, it's spelled differently at the beginning here, or it's spelled the same, but with different types of letters. The Lord said to my Lord. See Lord at the end as well? The Lord, my Lord. Well, in many English Bibles, they will put the Lord in, the first Lord in lowercase capital letters, okay? Whereas the next one just comes L-O-R-D, 
you know, first letters capitalized, all the rest are lowercase. And the reason English translations are doing that is to show you that in the original Hebrew, back in Psalm 110, the psalmist David used two different words to speak of the Lord. The first one, the Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, comes from the Hebrew word Yahweh, which is Israel's covenant-keeping God. And in Psalm 110, I believe that is in reference to God the Father. Okay? So we're going to understand this quote together. It's going to be pretty easy today. Okay? Three people are identified in Psalm 110, verse 1. First, the Lord. Who's that? God the Father. The second person identified with the psalm is identified with the word my. See that? The Lord said to my Lord. That is in reference to the author of the psalm, David. My equals David. If I were writing a letter to you and I talked about my tie or my coat or my whatever, my book, I'd be describing the author's book or tie or letter, right? So the second person we identify is David. The Lord, God the Father, said to my, David's, Lord. Different word. It's that third word that's very important to understand as well. Here, the, the word Lord in the phrase my Lord does not refer to God the Father or David, but to someone David believes is his Lord, Master, or Savior. As you read further in the psalm, it will become obvious that David sees God the Father exalting, serving, and forcing others to submit to David's future Lord. Another New Testament text help us very clearly here. David's future Lord, according to the entire New Testament scripture, is Jesus the Messiah. Okay, so Psalm 1101, if we're going to understand it, God the Father says to David's Lord, Jesus. Okay, so with that foundational understanding of the psalm, we can learn what Jesus is doing with this question. So Jesus questions, how can the scribes think of the Messiah as David's son when Psalm 110 says he's David's Lord? I mean, so Jesus' question is kind of a, a difficult one for the crowds to consider. Is, it, is he a son or is he a Lord? And I think what is happening here is that it appears that Jesus is questioning the scribes' false messianic uh, assumptions, and perhaps those of the crowd. It seems that the scribes viewed the upcoming Messiah as a descendant, as a subordinate of David. He's going to come from David. He's going to be a son of David. He's going to, you know, uh, be subordinate to, though, that king, our ultimate king, David. When you think about this even in, in real life, how often do, would a father describe his son as being his Lord or his Savior? I, I have not ever heard, as, uh, as weird as we can get with giving names to children, I've never heard yet of a father calling his son God. God, we just don't give that name to our sons, okay? And so people do not normally name their sons God or Lord. So Jesus is asking this question. Now, Jesus is not denying that the Messiah would be the son of David, as I see it. He's not denying that. There are a whole host of Old Testament texts that would demonstrate that for us. And this is an important part of the New Testament. I mean, I won't get into it, but like you could go through just about every book, 
of the New Testament or many books of the New Testament and see that they have the Messiah, the Lord, coming from David's seed. So like in the very first gospel, you got Matthew, and he gives a genealogy. You know, in Matthew's genealogy, what's he doing? He's establishing that the Messiah comes from the seed of David. And he, he ends it there with Joseph adopting Jesus as well. So you've got the Messiah uh, in Matthew's gospel. And, and all throughout the, the book, I mean, seven times, Matthew in his gospel calls Jesus son of David. It's important to Matthew. It's important as well to Luke. In the very first two chapters of Luke's gospel, I was just reading this week, and I saw the phrase, son of David, five times. This is important for Matthew. It's important for Luke. Who, for, who could forget what Paul the apostle said about Jesus in Romans 1, 3 and 4? What, how does he describe him there? He describes him in many significant ways. But one of the ways is son of David. He's from the seed of David. Jesus himself will call himself this at the very end of time in Revelation 22, when he's purveying the new heaven and the new earth, which he's created, he calls himself, or he says, I am from the root of David. So it's not wrong to say that the Messiah is the son of David. It's, that's true as far as it go, goes, but it's not enough. The Messiah is more than the son of David. He is the son and Lord of David. See, both concepts are necessary if you're going to understand who the Messiah Jesus is. And so, uh, going back to our text in this Mark 12 text, you've got whose son is he? Is he son of, is he son, or how could he say that if he calls him the Lord? And then we see the response of the crowds at the end of verse 37. And the great throng heard him gladly. They're dumbfounded by what he's saying, his question. How can the scribes say he's son when the psalm says he's Lord? It doesn't give the answer, but I think the answer is he's both son and Lord. So I was looking through this and thought through this. I thought, you know, before we move on to the next text, it'd be interesting for us to consider a little bit the original readers of this gospel. Remember a long time ago I said that when Mark writes this gospel, I think it's originally written for Roman readers who are enduring persecution and suffering in the late 60s AD. Okay, and so as, as Roman readers at that time, they're living in a time when Christians are experiencing severe persecution and martyrdom for the Christian faith. They're existing in a time when it is strictly forbidden to identify anyone as Lord except Caesar. And so I do not think it'll be lost on Mark's original readers. I think Mark knows that the correction of the scribes' theology here and claiming that Jesus is David's Lord will strengthen the faith and resolve of many readers who have heard their loved ones cry out with their final breath, Jesus is Lord. David's hope here for vindication is his Lord, and it's the hope of rope of Mark's Roman readers as well. David's Lord is their hope for vindication and salvation. Even if they die, it's the Lord who will deliver them. And, and men and women, something's never changed. We talked about 40 years of celebration. Here's 2,000 years. Nothing's changed. David's Lord is also our only hope for salvation and deliverance as well. 
So one day, when we're at the end of it all, and, and we're, you know, we've made it through the trials, the difficulties of life, and we're at the very brink of the end of our existence, our hope is only found in David's Lord as well. And so Jesus corrects the scribe's theology here, verses 35 through 37, and then he moves beyond that to their behavior, verses 38 through 44. As we get into his correction of their behavior, I like how he does it. He, Jesus launches what I'm going to call a direct attack on the scribe's behavior, the first part. And then he, he gives a comparison which actually undermines the scribe's behavior as well. Okay, after that. So two part, I want to see the direct attack. Look with me at verses 38 through 40. Verse 38. And in his teaching, he said, beware of the scribes, direct attack who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces, have the best seats in synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive greater condemnation. So this direct attack starts out with a command to the crowds. Beware of them. Beware. Look out for them. This is very strong language from Jesus. Beware of them. And you could tell it's strong if, if this week, if you would compare this text to its parallel text in Matthew's gospel. We could write down somewhere. Matthew 23. You write down Matthew 23 sometime. And in Matthew's gospel, in the same account, Matthew just gives us a little bit more of what Jesus said. Mark just summarizes it here. Matthew goes right after it. And you might remember this passage, for in this passage, Jesus says uh, seven times, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. And he, he describes them in different ways. Woe to you, hypocrites, you blind guides, you brood of vipers, you whitewashed tombs which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. That's what Matthew says, Jesus said. Now Mark's summary is, yeah, it's shorter, but it's just as pointed. Beware of them. Beware of them. And it's just as ruthless. For then he, what Mark does is he identifies, you know, Jesus says, six Practices that the scribes do that reveal, reveal that they're blind guides, they're whitewashed tombs. Practices are these. He says, Mark says, they like to walk around in long robes. It's number one. Now, this does not describe how they prefer to lounge at home. You say, well, what's wrong with walking around in long robes? I'm not going to get into that debate today. But he's describing how they like to go around town and at religious gatherings. The scribes prefer to parade around in long, showy religious garb so that others will be impressed with their piety. That's the group that Jesus is confronting here, the scribes. And men and women, we, we must not think, you know, so we're thinking about this demonstration, number one for them, they're walking around in long robes to demonstrate their religious piety. Point of application here, we, we must not think that the way we dress for religious activities makes us more pious or spiritual than another. 
If that's how we think, then we need to adjust the scale of our conscience a bit. Adjust the scale of our conscience and, and tune it in line with the scripture. The scriptures can help you with things even like clothing and how to do so in our culture. Okay, so we compare our conscience, what we think about clothing, to the scripture, and the text is our guide, right? Text is our guide. So if you prefer to wear a certain type of clothing for religious activities, do so as an act of submission to God, but do not sit in judgment on those who dress differently because they don't measure up to your standards. I say this, all around the world, There are believers gathering together today in God-honoring and culturally appropriate clothes. And rest assured, they don't all look the same in all of those assemblies. And they don't even look the same in every seat within the same assembly. And so as we're thinking of the scribes here, they like to walk around in long robes to demonstrate their religiosity. Can't be like that. Secondly, they like greetings in the marketplaces. The scribes happen to find themselves in their best clothes in the marketplaces and enjoy the respect that they get from everyone around them. From the normal population, you know. They like the greetings in marketplaces. They prefer the best seats in the synagogue. Uh, To understand this, I want to take you to a parallel passage. We're going to do this twice. We're going to do this one and the next one. Go to James 2. The scribes, Jesus' direct attack, they wear long robes, they like greetings in marketplaces, and they like the best seats in the synagogues. James chapter 2. When you go to James chapter 2, the context here is about showing partiality towards rich people. And especially, verse 2 Showing partiality, the text says, in your assembly, in your, and I think it's primarily religious gathering. It's about not showing partiality to someone who's rich who comes into your religious gathering and casting off the poor who doesn't have his nice clothing. Okay, so look at James 2, verse 2. I just want to read this for you. For James says, for if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your, into your assembly, I'm taking that as religious gathering, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in. And if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts. Like this is like an analogy. And the scribes, when they go into the synagogue, a religious gathering place, they're looking for the best seats. And uh, this kind of illustrates for us how that might be, be possible. And in, in James's counsel, don't, don't just give the best seats to the rich people in your religious gatherings. Fourth, in our text, it says that they prefer the places of honor at feasts. And I'll invite you to turn over to another text here, Luke 14. Turn over to Luke 14. To just have this, this description of the scribes come alive for you a little bit. Luke 14. Okay, we're going to Luke 14, then we're going to go back to Mark 12 and stay there, so don't panic. Luke 14. In this chapter, Jesus himself has been invited to the, a feast at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees. Significant person. 
And so Jesus looks around and he sees people rushing around to get the best seats at the banquet, at the feast. And so he gives the counsel that we're going to read here to that situation. So look at Luke 14, verse 7. It says, Now he told a parable to those who were invited. When he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, When you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he invited you, both will come and say to you, give your place to this person. And then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowliest place. So that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you'll be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. Here, the scribes notoriously seized the places of honor at wedding feasts and banquets. That's not what Jesus says. Jesus says, no, no, start low. So like way low. And if you're going to be lifted up in the banquet, let other people push you up. You see Jesus' counsel here. The scribes, they don't have that philosophy. Scribes demand the best seats. Now go back to Mark chapter 12 and we'll finish out these descriptions of the scribes. So Jesus is going after their behavior. You know, as you get to this point in the text, about this point, if you're stopping thinking and reading about the scribes, you're like, man, I just don't know if I really like these people at all. They're a bit disgusting, but then you keep reading, it's worse. Fifth description. We learn they devour widows' houses. Imagine Jesus, temple, scribes their seat of their authority, and he describes them as this brood of people like to swallow up whole widows in their houses and they spit out the widow. All of their houses. It's a metaphorical way of describing the fact that the scribes took advantage of the most destitute people of their day. As much as I studied this week, I don't, I don't know that we know exactly how they did this. Uh, there are a lot of theories, you know, charging excessive legal fees to scribes who've lost their husbands or perhaps accepting a widow's house as a pledge for an unpayable debt. Whatever it is, though, they are exploiting, exploiting poor widows. They're taking advantage of pr- these precious women in their most vulnerable time, the time after their husband has died and left them. So these long-robed religious men were actually monsters who were swallowing up widows in their houses. Now sadly, today, there are still religious charlatans who pray and take advantage of widows. And the text will be very clear what sort of condemnation those sort of charlatans face. Again, in in a moment of application for Colonial Baptist Church, I say this must never, never be true of Colonial Baptist Church. We do not rip off widows. Okay, we do not take widows' houses. If anything, we pass the plate around to care for 
the needs of our widows. And if we don't have enough, you know what we'll do? We pass it around again. Okay, we cannot be known. This is, this is outward religion. These men are the scribes. And then finally he says, and for a show they make long prayers. William Lane, one of the commentators I read this week, described it. says, they made of public prayers an opportunity to win the esteem of men. One well-known theologian and preacher, and I, for life of me this week, I could not remember who said it or where he got it, so maybe you could find it this week and help me. He, he made a point like this. He, he, he said that it's a good practice for preachers to never pray longer in public than they do in private. And I think that's probably a very good practice. So in conclusion here, Jesus says, these sort of people, the end of verse 40, look at the end of verse 40, the scribes face a more severe form of condemnation. I think this suggests as other New Testament texts, and we don't have time to look at all of these, that the more one receives revelation of Jesus and knows what to do, the more one continues to reject him and does things like this, exploiting widows, making shows of religion, the greater judgment he or she will face eternally in hell. So the scribes will face greater judgment because of their false piety and their filthy practices. That's why I said, direct attack. After that, Jesus makes a comparison. Verses 41 through 44. And I think that this is another way of going after the scribe's character and behavior. Um, another way of driving home his point. Here Jesus will make, give an example or make an example out of another person that he sees in the temple this day. Look at me at verse 41. It says that he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money in the offering boxes. Many rich people put in large sums and a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all that she has to live on. Now, to be clear here, I think that the actual comparison is between a poor widow and a multitude of rich Jewish people. Okay, that's the comparison. The wealthy Jews... They give large amounts of money out of their abundance, the text says. They have more to give. They can give more, more abundance in their living. The poor widow, the text says, gives everything that she has. Everything she has to live on. And the text tells us exactly what that is. It's two small copper coins. He's talking here in Jewish currency. Two small copper coins. They don't really total much. And then since Mark is writing to Roman readers, he translates that. Those two Jewish coins, that equals one Roman coin. And it's translated here, one penny. And so since Mark translates what this woman's gift is for her audience, I want to do the same for you. Our best estimates that would be that her gift was the equivalent of one sixty-fourth of a normal day's wage for a common worker. It says, I do the math and you can check me. You can, I think the equivalent today might be something like she has two 50-cent pieces. 
something like $1. That is her net in that's her net worth. That's it. $1. Now, if you only had two 50-cent pieces, you might put in neither. Or maybe one. But she puts in everything. All that she has. She does not give a tithe. 10% like other Jews of her day. She puts in 100%. You see, as you go through this text, what matters to God here is not how much you put in the offering, but how much remains in your pocket. And by way of analogy here, I think what Jesus is doing is Jesus is going after a point. He he demands undivided loyalty and commitment from his followers. By way of metaphor, how much remains in your heart that you refuse to give over to him? And this widow becomes a great example. She's just not a widow, by the way. I mean, the way you could translate this would be one widow poor. Not just a widow, poor. And she becomes a great example of what, he, what Jesus has been saying and what Mark has been striving for in the whole book. I mean, at the beginning of this gospel, Jesus goes to the disciples and he says, leave it all and come follow me. And for Mark, that's what this woman represents. She has left it all. She's following God. I mean, just last week, we dealt with two resolutions for the new year. And the first one, what did Jesus say we should do? What's the greatest commandment? You shall love the Lord your God with all. All of your heart. All of your mind. All of your soul, all of your strength. This poor widow is a great example of that. She's not only a better example than the wealthy who give valuable gifts, give more valuable gifts, but also a better example than the scribes who, one of the descriptions of these monsters was scribes who devour widows' homes. So if we're, gonna, if we're gonna follow the scribes or follow the widow, we should follow the widow in this text. So this morning, we've seen a startling contrast. We've been confronted with the scribes' wrong theology and behavior, and we've seen the undivided focus of a poor widow. May everyone under the sound of my voice today evaluate yourself your heart, your soul. Are you committed to Christ with all that you have? Are you a white washed tomb looking good on the outside but are full of uncleanness? Last two weeks I've heard of another friend removed from pastoral ministry. The four years that I went to Bible college, I think the Bible college graduated over 125 men who 
made plans and had a degree toward pastoral ministry, over 125. If I were to count them today, as I tried to do this morning, 125 guys, I could count the ones remaining in pastoral ministry on two hands, maybe one. My latest friend resigned because his wife of almost 20 years of marriage walked away from her marriage vows to pursue another man. Men and women, for those 20 years, the outside may have looked good, but inside, inside, what was going on? Inside. How about you? Have you been surrendering everything to David's Lord? Remember the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outside, but the Lord looks on the heart. Let's pray together. Lord, there are some here today who have never believed in Jesus, David's Lord, and it damns them to hell. They might be wearing culturally acceptable clothes to this gathering, but inside they're full of dead men's bones. Lord, please grasp their heart. Enable them to see their sin and to see that the only remedy for their sin is to believe in Jesus to repent of their sin. Lord, I pray that they would do that now. As they sit in this pew as an outsider, that you would grip their heart, that they would say to you, Lord, I believe, forgive me of my sin. Lord, there are others here who are fostering a showiness of outward religion but their hearts are full of bitterness, lust, and greed. May you, Lord, through your power, give us wholehearted devotion to Christ, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.